Today on The Black Goat, we're talking with a special guest, Paul Litvak, about bringing his academic training to working in the tech industry. And we read a letter about whether open science practices apply the same across different areas of psychology. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and my co-hosts are Alexa Tullett and Samin Vizier. And on today's episode, we have a special guest, Paul Litvak. Paul got his PhD from Carnegie Mellon, where he studied behavioral decision research. Uh, During graduate school, he started up a data analytics consulting firm. And during and since graduate school, he has worked at Facebook and Google, and now at Airbnb, where he's a product manager. Uh, A little later in the show, we're going to be talking to Paul about working in the tech industry and what his background in academia brings to that. Um, And uh, we're really happy to have you with us. Thanks a lot for joining us, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So, um, Paul is. So, are you at work right now? Are you at Airbnb? Yes, I am at work right now. I'm uh, holed up in a small conference room in Antigua. Wait, what did you say about a ball pit? There's a ball pit at your work? Yes, there is a room that is called the ballroom uh, that is a small ball pit about the size that could fit about like two people in it. Um, yeah. There's wow, all kinds the of movies are true. Yes. <laughs> and do you have a really well-stocked snack room? That's another thing I see in the movies. Yes, that it, we do have a well-stocked snack room, although uh, our spin on it is that it's always like super healthy. So uh, there are no like um, like candy. I mean, there's like kind of like fruit snacks type things, like chocolate covered raisins or almonds, but they mm. don't do the they don't do like the straight you know like Snickers bars and like things like that. That um, like when I was at Google, at Facebook rather, they had like really crazy uh, over the top snacks uh, that were always very hard to resist. So I'm thankful that they <laughs> take those away here, so I'm not as tempted, and then I can just like eat veggie chips or whatever if, if I get hungry. I feel like we could do a whole episode of just these questions, but yeah. do you have someone who cuts your hair on site? <laughs> uh, no, we don't do that. We don't have that either. They have that at Google also. Yeah. Uh, we actually like a uh, kind of like uh, the ethos of Airbnb is they want us to actually be in the city and kind of like experience uh, the urban life. So like we don't have a gym uh, and, you know, though we do have food, like there, there is a sense that they encourage us to like go outside and like experience the world rather than like staying in the little arcology that is the tech company office i I just love that like we don't we don't have a gym is it's like a a, it was like a decision that was not it's it's, It's yeah it's like it was not an economic decision it's not you know it's like at the university of oregon the fact because they're not gonna pay for one (laughs) 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 where uh you know whereas at airbnb it's like yeah we could have but we decided to just like you know, up the snacks instead, or, or carpet the walls, which people, uh, for people listening, Paul is, is when, when he first came on, I, I asked him if he was lying on the floor, because apparently at Airbnb, they carpet the walls. So there's this like lovely white shag carpeting behind him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very sad. <laughs> He's like yawning and stretching on the wall. Is it possible to hurt yourself at all? Like, yes. <laughs> are there yes, any sharp edges? <laughs> Those almonds. Not in be this careful. Often. Yes, exactly. <laughs> choke on one environment. <laughs> okay, wait, I have one more question about this. So <laughs> yeah. the, you said that the philosophy of Airbnb is that you are supposed to 
go out into the world sometimes. So yeah. is the converse true that like at like places that have gyms and have like well-stocked kitchens and uh, on-site hairdressers that like the idea is that you can sort of like exist in that community and not have to go elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a casino, you know. <laughs> But to be yeah. fair, those places are in like Palo Alto and Mountain View, where the world is pretty bleak outside of the. Yeah, I grew up and in the, Palo Alto. <laughs> we just lost all of our standards. Joke is also that now, like, like fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> no, they probably hate Palo Alto too. There's not good town gown relations, in my experience. <laughs> so there are some like classic Google stories about people who actually live, literally live at the office because it's much cheaper. And they're like in a, a motorhome, and so then they just like shower inside and then like sleep in their car. Um, there are definitely three people of them like live that. At my mom's house in my bedroom, <laughs> and I see them like at 4 a.m. when I see with my mom. It's really. I bizarre. totally believe that. My favorite like Google Legend story. I don't know if I'm going to violate an NDA by telling this, but there was a guy when I was there who uh, he had left his car in a parking lot for like five years and had never bothered to get it because he was like commuting on the buses or whatever. And they repaved the parking lot one day and they moved his car, and so he lost it. And so he sent this, like, hilarious email to facilities being like, uh, I left my car here for five years. Like, has anyone seen it? And they're like, oh, yeah, we moved it to, like, such and such a place. And then that guy got dragged, like, royally after that because they were like, it's ridiculous. Like, you never drive your car. Oh, that is amazing. Well, uh, and that's our episode, everybody. So go, go no. <laughs> I think we've just, we've sold everyone listening on, like, yep, I'm, screw this academia. I'm going where the snacks are. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll talk about downsides. We'll yeah. get to downsides. <laughs> we'll, yeah, we'll get, we'll get to, to that. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, yeah. Sh- should we? Should we do? Should we get into letter? our letter? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Let's try that. All right. So, the letter begins: "Dear the Black Goat, throughout my time listening to your podcast, my interest in open science has continued to grow, and I agree that a lot of its practices are important for psychological research." However, I'm wondering if its practices are best utilized only in certain fields of psychology. For instance, I am a health psychologist who does longitudinal research. In this field, studies can take years to complete, so very large data sets are collected. This allows researchers to write manuscripts out of this data set for years to come. A problem with this is that not all hypotheses are formulated before data collection. I can see both sides to this argument. On the one side, It does not really allow for the practice of certain open science practices, e.g. pre-registration of hypotheses. On the other, longitudinal research is time-consuming and expensive, and sometimes it is not feasible to conduct a study to answer a set of specific research questions. So, do open science practices work better in some fields of psychology than others? Thank you, a cognitively dissonant health psychologist. Um, So, I like this letter because I think that um, this kind of question comes up often in my discussions um, with other researchers, particularly people who do research that is very resource intensive. So for instance, EEG researchers, you know, they often have this question of like, do I, if I like collect a data set for one purpose and then come up with other questions, am I not allowed to do this because it violates open science practices? And I think both Samin and Sanjay have mentioned that they've um, come across this question in their own research as well. So Um, So, yeah, maybe you guys have some insight or Paul, maybe you have insight. Yeah, a lot of my research is like this, too. So like my last data collection started in 2012 and we're still not done coding the data and it's a longitudinal study and so on. And so we are reusing it, you know, hopefully for many papers to come and we didn't pre-register anything and so on. But I think I would frame this question a little bit differently or the way I think about it with my research is that the the open science principles still apply. If it's if I didn't pre-register, I still can't 
interpret the p-value as if as if I had pre-registered, I still have to be really careful about interpreting my results. And so it just means that I'm at a certain level of these like ideal practices and I'm below the like optimal level of transparency and planning and so on. Mm -hmm. And there's no way around that, right? Like it's not like the principles do or don't apply. They still apply. You just have constraints on how optimally you can engage in these practices, but there's trade-offs. So just like, you know, just because we can't always get representative samples that doesn't mean we don't have the downsides of not having a representative sample, but we might have some other upsides instead of things we couldn't do if we had to get a representative sample. So I, I feel the same way about many of these open science practices that it's like, it still would be better if we could do them. If we can't, then we should, you know, scale down our conclusions or mm-hmm. calibrate them to what we can do. Right. And even the use of the word optimal, I think like, so I know what you mean to mean is that like in terms of the dimension of, you know, open openness and pre-registration maybe you can't do things in the optimal way Um, but that doesn't mean that you're not making sort of like optimal decisions giving your constraints right so I think like one question that somebody um, that the person who wrote this letter might be wondering about is like you know is it still okay for me to um, collect big data sets and intend to do exploratory research on them in the future Um, and I think that we should encourage people to do that right so um, so yeah, include as much as you can in your data sets and collect huge data sets and just know that, you know, there are like the hypotheses that you form after you've collected them should be, you know, you should interpret those results differently than the ones that you in- planned in advance. Yeah, I think the, you know, to me, what this question and even the framing of it highlights is the importance of being connected to the reasons why all these practices exist and the intellectual foundations of them, right? So. You can, you can sort of think of open science practices, quote unquote, as like a list of things that you do, right? You pre-register, you post your data, you post your materials, yada, yada, yada. Um, and, you know, it's sort of in the same way that like in statistical analysis, you could have sort of like a toolbox mindset where there's like the different Dropbox menus in SPSS in which, you know, I'm going to click buttons and pick which analysis. But, you know, you sort of step back from that and you say, oh, this is a model in the statistics framework, right? This is a model of the data. And so is this the sensible model? Is this the right model? How does this apply to my problem? And the same thing in with these kinds of open science practices, you step back and you say, like, why, why am I doing this? Well, you know, and there are m- multiple reasons. It's, you know, for transparency and so that others can verify your work. It's for, you know, some, some of these things have to do with the interpretability of statistics and things like that. And, and I think that there's, there's an onus both on people using these to, to be intellectually engaged and in how you use them with, with why you're doing them, with what they're achieving, so that you can, when, when things don't exactly apply to, to your specific problem, you can sort of figure it out. I think there's also been in the history of the sort of the recent history of open science practices, there's been a tendency to illustrate a lot of things with simple cases and toy examples. So when pre-registration first became a thing, you know, all the, I shouldn't say all, but quite a few of the examples that were in papers talking about pre-registration saying, here's what it looks like, as well as sort of published examples, they were simple two by two ANOVAs, right? They were, they were really straightforward things. And there were sort of pedagogical reasons why if you're going to explain to someone what pre-registration is, it makes sense to show them with a simple case. 
But then I think people who do other kinds of research were like, well, my work doesn't look like that. And so does this even, uh, that's where kind of the letter writer is coming from. And I, I think that there, ha there has been some good movement in how people who are promoting these practices and writing about them are starting to engage more and more with some of these more complex questions like what does this mean in terms of existing data what does this mean with longitudinal mm -hmm. data where you you're not going to wait until the 10th wave to look at your data right and so like what what do all these things mean and and so those general principles and goals have to be applied and the specific practices some will make sen more sense for some problems than others um, some will have to be adapted um, and and that that that's part of the that's part of the deal. And so I, I would say that open science as like a set of aims and a, a set of guiding principles applies to everything. But but what it actually looks like in practice is, is going to be adapted to to each research problem and area. I don't know. But I'm I'm curious, Paul, from from your perspective, like how how do these kinds of issues come into the the data analytic work that you do? Yeah, I, I have like a couple of thoughts, I guess, and then I can answer that. Like, I guess one thought is like, you know, are there some technological ways or I, I hate saying this because I'm like putting the classic like techie solves societal problems with tech mm -hmm. hat on. But like, you know, Kaggle has like a kind of blinding, like when you uh, are like fitting a building a machine learning model, then you're testing it. Right. There's like some kind of blinding to like some aspect of the data set. And then you test on that in order to like verify that you you know have done a good job. Similarly, you could imagine if it's a longitudinal data set, maybe you do a prediction at wave 10 uh, for what's going to happen in wave 11, 12, 13. And then you confirm that prediction. Like, I think there are ways in which you could like set up a scheme, uh, you know, that would create at least some blinding. But like even stepping back, I guess a question I would throw back is like kind of like th there's two ways in which you could like think about what these like open science practices are for like one is to like make uh make it like transparent or trustworthy like externally like if i do these practices then like other people will like believe me right and here like the worry that you could you could raise is like well for any process that we come up with like somebody who's motivated and malicious could of course like go around it and undermine it but another way to view it is actually like it's not about like you know uh, convincing someone else because there's always some like kind of like epistemic uncertainty, but rather it's about like convincing yourself first. Like you're the person that's easiest to fool, and so if you set up a process by which you can judge your own hypothesis in like a fair-minded way, then at least like you can be confident that you know that what you're confident in the the claim that you're putting out there. So I I don't know. Like I, I kind of I struggle sometimes like thinking about like is our goal here to design practices that are like unassailable that like nobody can like get around or mm -hmm. is it just about like creating a you know a better environment where you yourself can can do better work like how do you guys think about that how do y'all think about yeah. that i think that yeah it's actually really not that different from all the stuff we teach in intro research methods like we teach about how you know if you want to make causal claims you need internal validity if you want to make changes about claims about changes over time you should really measure things over time and so on so some of those things require other features that make it harder to pre-register or whatever and with we teach in undergrad research methods there's these trade-offs often not necessarily they're not inherently um offsetting but like if you want more internal validity you often give up some external validity and it's the same here like i think if you want a longitudinal design you're going to give up some pre-planning because you're going to make some decisions on the fly you're not going to be able to go back and redo it after you realize what you did wrong or whatever mm -hmm. 
And so you just have to accept the downsides. Like you can't pretend that those downsides don't exist, but at the same time, you're getting something for those downsides, right? You're getting repeated measures over 10 years or whatever that other people who can pre-register and do things really neatly and then replicate it three times. That's great. They can do that, but they can't do what you did. And so I think that all of this goes back to, yeah, I, I agree with your distinction between like, well, when we're doing, when we're trying to take care of internal validity, are we doing that for ourselves or for others? Ultimately, we should be doing it for ourselves because we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to have confounds. And so the same sh attitude should, in my view, should be taken with open science practices and pre-registration and so on, is that we should want that for ourselves to have more validity in our claims, but they're not all absolutely, like, they're all great and desirable, but you can't always achieve all of the different kinds of validities. Yeah. And I think, I mm -hmm. think some, I mean, I, I really like that distinction, Paul. I think some of the, some, some of being aware of human biases means that you should, I think the, the actual distinction itself is an important one, but I think in people's heads, they should view those things as m maybe more overlapping a little bit in the sense that if, if you, if you couldn't convince someone else, you shouldn't be so sure that you yourself should be convinced. Because that, that's, I think, one of the ways that people end up p-hacking is that they don't realize that they're doing it, right? And so all these steps that would make it credible to someone yeah. else actually should be kind of making it more credible to you. Uh, on the other part of what you said, I really liked mm -hmm. the, and I, it, I didn't think that that was like, you know, a tech person thinking tech solutions at all. I think that that's actually looking to what other fields do is a really valuable part of it and and that's part of being engaged in why you do this right so if the if the goal is to avoid overfitting to the specific data set in front of you pre-registration accomplishes that um, but it requires mm -hmm. you to make all of your data analytic decisions in advance and so and part of what the letter writer is saying is well you know we can't always do that and so the kinds of things you're talking about, either holdout samples, cross-validation, or blinded analyses, things like that, are other ways of getting to the same goal where you can, you know, you, you allow yourself to look at, if you can't make all the decisions without seeing the data, you allow yourself to look at the data in ways that protect you from overfitting. Either you look at part of the data or, mm -hmm. you know, or, or doing, doing other kinds of things. So, so I think that, that, I think that's actually yeah. very much a part of it. And that's a, that's something where like psychologists talking to people who do machine learning, you know, can learn from what other fields have come up with to solve these problems. Yeah, I like your point too, Sanjay, about sort of like the idea that we need to sort of understand fundamentally what the purpose of these different um, practices is. And sort of, I mean, this is not always possible, but sort of think about the, um, What's the, not the letter of the law, the spirit mm -hmm. of the law? Yeah, so think about the spirit of the law rather than necessarily focusing on the letter of the law. Like maybe we can't always have all of the uh, letters of the law set in stone to take this metaphor <laughs> a bit too far. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this reminds me of a conversation that I had um, when I was in graduate school with Jennifer Tackett, actually. So she, we were talking about... Um, statistics. Um, so Jen Jennifer was a faculty member and I was a graduate student um, and I was w doing some kind of factor analysis or something maybe for the first time. 
And I wanted her to tell me like, okay, well, what are the rules? Like, how do I decide like whether I have one factor or two factors or like, you know, and she was like, well, it depends on what your goals are. And I was like, well, I want to know the statistical rules. Like give me a yes or no answer. But of course her point was like, you need to sort of understand what these statistics are doing and then like use them to accomplish the goals that you have. And I think um, that's sort of similar for open science practices. There's probably not going to be a one size fits all uh, solution. Although I do think it is important to have um, heuristics and principles and stuff like that. I would also add, and this is a topic for another day, but that part of the unique challenge of this letter writer situation is that they want to reuse the same data set for multiple papers. And so a lot of the techniques that help prevent overfitting when you didn't pre-register will work really well the first time you're analyzing the data set. But once you know something about it, it becomes a lot harder to be truly blind. And I think it might be that we just have to accept that every subsequent analysis were a little bit less blind and it's a little bit less independent and neutral. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I would say, yeah, I think that even that is, it's kind of like what you said at the beginning. I mean, even that is part of being true to the reasons why you're, why you're true. doing yeah. quote unquote open science practices. In that case, what you're, what you're doing is you're not changing a data analytic practice. You're changing an interpretation. So you're, you're, using the guiding principle to say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to cap my interpretation or, you know, cap the sort of my assumption about how robust or replicable or unbiased this interpretation is because I know of how I got there. Yeah. Cool. Well, I hope we helped the letter writer. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> cognitively dissonant health psychologist. Um, see, even in their signature, they're taking from social psychology. So I think, you know, hopefully they can take <laughs> some of these practices from oh, that's dumb. Anyway, okay. Um, bad segue, Sanjay. All right. Um, cool. Well, thank you to our letter writer. And if to people listening, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, we are emailable. Our email address is letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Um, you can send us a letter to be read and discussed on the podcast, or just if you have feedback or thoughts. We've gotten quite a bit of that recently, which I think we're going to get into a little bit later. Um, and uh, yeah, we want to just thank everyone who listens because we really appreciate people who download the podcast, listen to the podcast. Um, we, and, and it's kind of cool seeing more and more podcasts starting up. Uh, Dan Quintana had a great, who's one of the hosts of everything hurts, had a great, uh, um, thread on how to start your own podcast the other day on Twitter, which, uh, um, people should, should check out if you're thinking of podcasting, that's, that's another cool thing that you could do. Um, if you, other ways to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at black goat pod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod, and our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. Cool. So um, in our for the rest of the, the episode, we want to just talk with Paul about uh, um, uh, what it's like, I guess, how you got to where you are and, and what it's like to, to do what you do. And Samin already mentioned, Paul, we'll post it in the show notes, Paul wrote a terrific FAQ for people that want to mm -hmm. go from social science into the tech industry. Um, and and that that has a lot of good ideas um, for for people. And I, I, that's actually one of the things. I've, I remember you posted that on Twitter a while back, and, and I found it really helpful just because 
as an advisor. So I'm probably not going to be making the, the leap uh, from academia to tech industry or something else, uh, most likely not. But, um, but I'm advising students who are. And uh, a lot of us who are advisors um, uh, who, who want to support students doing this don't necessarily know what to do. So I wonder maybe as a, as a starting point, Paul, if you were, you wrote that, that FAQ to, you know, graduate students mostly as, as the audience, if you were going to be talking to, you know, faculty who are training graduate students, what, what are some of the things that you would tell, tell us about, you know, how we can sort of better prepare our students who might want to go into tech? Yeah, great question. Um, also, again, thanks for having me. Really uh, fantastic. Um, so I guess the first thing I would say is like from just like an attitude perspective, I think that uh, professors should be a little more welcoming and opening to the idea of uh, folks making the leap, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously the job market has only gotten, you know, uh, tougher in the last, I don't know, 20 years. Um, and increasingly, you know, people, people uh, you know, want to do that either, you know, for reasons of, of just like expediency or, or just, uh, you know, re actual research interests. Like I think, you know, there are genuinely fascinating questions that are being asked right now in industry that uh, are very hard to, uh, to answer through a traditional kind of like research lens. Like, just to give like one uh, example, right? Like there's a team at Airbnb that works on uh, discrimination and ways to uh, mitigate uh, discrimination uh, against minorities on our platform. Now, uh, mm -hmm. it's a super hard problem, but I would be hard pressed to think of another example of like a social psychology problem at scale uh, in an applied setting that you could work on that mm -hmm. you know would have as much impact uh, you know, as, as that one. So I think like, you know, there are, I think faculty should kind of like realize that there are actually like opportunities to actually further a research agenda uh, in industry. And so we shouldn't necessarily see it as like the death knell of that person. Like, yeah, oh, right. they're gonna go into the void and I'm never gonna hear from them again. And they're not gonna be like a part of my, you know, extended kind of like student network, right? Like having those linkages, like having a student that's super successful in industry is as much of a boon to you, uh, qua your own like reputation, uh, you know, with other potential graduate students, other faculty, et cetera, I think, as, you know, having a successful uh, candidate on the job market. So that's, I would say, kind of like macro level. I mean, like, other than that, I would say, the other thing I would say is that, like, I think that, um, you know, focusing on making sure that students are getting methodological training that's really strong, I think is something that's also really, really important. So uh, even if you yourself are not, you know, you use S S SPSS, like making sure that your student is, fo is getting the kind of like core methodology training, learning R, learning how to, you know, use R Markdown, like, you know, learning, um, you know, learning at least some rudimentary programming, like that kind of, that, that kind of toolkit that is kind of like universally applicable, making sure that all of your students have that kind of like universe, that basis uh, that they could then use to do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So I, that's probably the other big one that I would, that I would say. Would, uh, when, when Airbnb is, or, or just in the tech industry in general, I mean, that's, you know, mm -hmm. it's really, and uh, as a, as a just regular person, it's awesome to hear about Airbnb, like, dedicating resources to this problem right but let, let's let's go with that specifically like does airbnb when they were putting together that group were they did they specifically go and recruit social scientists who work on discrimination are they are and you know 
in, in the more general case, when they're working on things that are sort of social science-y kinds of things, are they more interested in someone's sort of substantive background, more interested in their sort yeah, of, right. you know, data and methodology chops? You know, is it a mix? What's the mix? Like, how, how, do, how do employers think about those things? Yeah, so I think it's kind of, it's both, and it's, it depends on the specific, like, sub-role that you go into. So um, in the case of the, the team, right, like, uh, externally, the, the Airbnb absolutely did reach out to uh, researchers, who, like social psychologists, tenured faculty who were working in this area. Um, a professor at St. Lawrence, whose name I can't remember, like, sorry, I, there are two professors, prominent professors that they reached out to, whose names unfortunately escaped me. Uh, but in addition to that, like, within the team itself, right, you've got uh, two different roles, right? There's a role of, like, data scientist. Uh, and that person is more uh, kind of on the methodology side, right? They're typically someone who can program and does stats really robustly, analyze experiments, that sort of thing. Very quantitative and very, like, has a lot of engineering background, at least at Airbnb. And there's another role called user experience researcher, which is less technical, involves more like survey research, uh, some kind of like qualitative stuff. Uh, and for those folks, absolutely, like domain expertise is really important. Uh, and a lot of those roles historically have gone to people who do HCI. But I think increasingly what you're seeing is more and more people uh, are coming from a social psych background going into those roles. I know Facebook uh, in particular has been on a, like a hiring spree. They've, you know, they've been an SPS people last next years. They have been like pretty aggressively recruiting social psychology people, even people who don't necessarily have all of the uh, like robust like technical background. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you had when you made the switch, and also like why you made the switch and yeah, all that? So, and also just for our listeners, HCI is human computer interaction. Um, but yeah, tell us tell us like how your your story. Yeah. Um, so my story is pretty atypical. I guess I would start with that. Um, like, I think it's a little, I, I feel like telling my story, I feel, I was thinking about this before the podcast and feeling a little sheepish about it because I feel like it's a little bit like asking somebody who went to Harvard about what academia is like. Like, it's kind, it's like, yeah, they're going to mm -hmm. know. But in some sense, like, is it the typical experience? Is it like what most people have like gone through? So like, I'll, let me start with like the ways in which I'm sort of like atypical and like maybe my experience would not be the most generalizable. So like for one thing, I have an undergrad in computer science. So I have like a, I have like a fairly like, you know, uh, intensive engineering background. I worked as a programmer before I went to grad school for a couple of years. Um, and then when I was in graduate school, um, so sort of like a, kind of like a funny odyssey. Like I started out at Carnegie Mellon uh, and my advisor at the time moved to the Kennedy School at Harvard and she, I moved with her uh, and spent a couple of years there uh, as like a research fellow or whatever. Um, and during that time, um, I had a hard time. Like, uh, you know, I don't, well, um, my uh, advisor at the time was pretty sick. And so like our research kind of like uh, was at a bit of a standstill at the time. Uh, and I was having like some frustrations from that. And uh, a friend of mine who I knew from, um, from undergrad actually uh, was also leaving graduate school in history and he was uh, going into his family's real estate business. And this is like so weird. So he's going to his family's real estate business. They were like designing, they were like building like gas stations and like shopping centers. And uh, they had this contract with a gas station chain and uh, the gas station chain had a statistical model to tell them where to build the gas stations. And it was a really simple like regression model. And the guy who did the model uh, unfortunately passed away and took his model with him to the beyond. 
Uh, and when that happened, they had this like emergency where they needed somebody to jump in and build a new Cisco model. And that summer, uh, so he reached out to a bunch of Zcon friends. Zcon friends said, this is not an interesting problem. It doesn't further my academic career. I don't care about it. He reached out to me. I said, I just read Gelman's uh, multi-level modeling textbook. I think you could like build a nice multi-level growth model to like model this. I wrote a proposal with him. We got the gig. And from there, we said, oh, like there's clearly like an opportunity to do like this kind of like real estate statistical modeling. Let's like start a little consulting company. And through his like uh, family business connections, we like got a bunch of like kind of pitch meetings basically. So I spent like two years in grad school, like kind of like as a, you know, full-time student and also a full-time, I guess, entrepreneur kind of like going around and pitching these different companies on different kinds of statistical analysis projects. And we did a bunch of uh, projects. And uh, during that time, uh, I ended up going back to Carnegie Mellon, switching advisors, started working with somebody else. And uh, the research, um, you know, it just wasn't turning out. Uh, I wasn't getting positive results. Um, and so my publication record, frankly, was not good enough to, uh, you know, to get a really good academic job, or, or so I thought. And I thought to myself, you know, I have a lot of student loans. I'd gone to undergrad uh, out of state at Michigan. I'd taken like six figures of student loans to do that. Um, and I was like, if I go to a postdoc and I have to start repaying these massive loans, I'm going to be basically in enforced poverty and for like an undetermined amount of time. And then who knows if I'm going to be able to get any kind of academic job at the end. Like everyone else has way more papers than me. Everyone else is much more successful than I am. And so I, I decided at that point to start looking at industry opportunities. Um, and I thought I would go to the startup and, we, you know, the consulting company, and we would just make a go of it uh, from that, but then, you know, applied to other jobs. And then I actually applied, somebody gave me a referral. I applied to this job at Facebook um, as a data scientist and I actually got rejected. So I got through the first screening interview. I got to a second interview. It was like a technical interview. I hadn't done computer science stuff in a really long time. It was basically like a CS algorithms interview, totally bombed it. Uh, and you know, got didn't get the job, and was pretty despondent. I remember that weekend I went and watched um, uh, the Social Network because it had just come out, and I was like, ah, oh, fuck, fuck Facebook, those bastards, you know. And then the next week, a fr another friend of mine from uh, from high school actually uh, was living in Austin, and he knew a recruiter at Facebook in the Austin office in operations. So it was also a data role, but it was like it was much more operational. It wasn't like you know, fancy data scientists study social behavior. It was like, you know, help fraud team fight fraud. Like it was just like, it was not, frankly, not particularly glamorous, but it was Facebook at the time. This was in 2010, you know, pre-IPO, seemed like a very exciting opportunity. And I actually, I interviewed for that and I got an offer there. And then basically they were like, you need to, uh, you need to make the decision in a week. You need to be out here like for training a week from now. And in one week I basically was like, okay, I'm doing this. And I, I took the plunge and I left, uh, and I, I left academia um, and it was horrible. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I remember, you know, I, I was like flying to, um, uh, to California to do my, to do my boot camp training. And I was just like, I was basically like in tears for like three straight days about it. Like it was, oh. it was very, very hard, um, you know, because I just, it was a part of my identity that, you know, was now not a part of my day. Like, who was I? What was the point of my life? Like, you know, before it's like, oh, I'm like contributing to the tapestry that is science or whatever. Uh, but now it's like, you know, I'm going to live and die and no one's going to ever remember. I mean, I was going to live and die. No one's going to remember me regardless. Like, I think it was a little bit silly mm -hmm. to think that, like, my contribution would be like, you know, whatever I'd be. I don't know who uh, Leon Festinger or something. But 
you know, but definitely that was that was really really hard and took me a really long time to get over it. I mean, like I the crying stopped after a few days, but uh, <laughs> definitely like the emotional scarring of that was yeah something that I that I definitely was like contending with for a long time. So sorry, that was a really long. No, answer. that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think for me in advising graduate students who are thinking about making the switch, like what I really wish I knew was like which reasons are good reasons to make the switch and which reasons are like just in their yeah. heads and it's actually not better. So like, mm-hmm. I think knowing more about the downsides, knowing more about what are, so like if you don't like academia because of the uncertainty about getting a job or the competitiveness or lack of work-life balance or the low mm-hmm. pay, it seems like some of those things are probably better in industry and some of those probably aren't or might even be worse or it might depend a lot on the company and so on. And so I think, mm-hmm it's really useful to hear about like which things well which things about academia led you to (laughs) consider leaving and then which things about industry turned out to be yeah good or bad i mean okay so you know in academia in terms of the why i mean like i i think i had a really hard time with the kind of like need for kind of like self-promotion or making it kind of like all about you i i realized as i especially when i made the leap into into industry i realized i really like working on teams like teams Mm -hmm. are awesome uh, and it not being about you is actually kind of great uh, and very liberating in a way. Like you're contributing to this goal. If you like believe in the goal, then you know you're motivated just just by virtue of that. And so like that to me was like actually pretty refreshing. Uh, you know, I, I definitely am not I'm not in it for like personal recognition. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that was that was definitely one thing. And also just you know the the pressure to publish was really hard. Like I you know um, I think I think. Even at the time, like in 2010, obviously like the p-hacking stuff hadn't really like emerged on the scene, but it was definitely like right there under the surface even then, and it was definitely something that I saw and that I, you know, that that troubled me, and I that was definitely a factor. Um, yeah. So. And that's I'll better in that. industry. Um, I mean, it's different in industry, right? Like at the end of the day, you have a bottom line that you're beholden to. Like, yeah, there are ways you can kind of like fool yourself, but the the reality mm-hmm. of the market kind of like forces a kind of discipline on you, you know, like just to give an example, right? Like, um, you know, uh, publication bias, right? Is, is a problem for us at Airbnb. Like there's a, uh, you can Google this. There's a, a data scientist who wrote a blog post about this, but there's a kind of winner's curse. Basically, you know, we run a bunch of experiments. Uh, the ones that are positive on some metric that we care about, we launch. And the ones that are negative, we don't launch. And then, you know, we want to do a step at the end to say, well, what was our impact on like the bottom line of the business? And you might think naively, oh, if I just add up my effect sizes across all my launched experiments, that's my, you know, that's my impact. It turns out that's actually not true. That's going to give you a biased estimate. Um, you know, uh, there's a kind of like a winner's curse issue there. So, um, you know, that's an example where, you know, we naively, you might have been incentivized, you know, for your team to like inflate your, your results. But actually, at the end of the day, because we care about whether or not we're actually materially impacting the business, like there is that corrective kind of like in place. So mm-hmm. that is that is one difference. Uh, just one thing, I, I guess uh, downsides, I want to go back to that because you asked about like downsides. So this is the big thing I want to say is that like, I think that if people th- people think that uh, like the way like going into industry is a way to avoid paying your dues, it's not. So like, you know, it's just different dues that you're paying, right? Like if you're, if you're paying the dues in academia, right? Academia is super hierarchical, you know, you are at the bottom of the hierarchy for a really long time, you know, the teaching load at the beginning, you know, all the various pressures purportedly, you know, it gets better as you, as you move up, right? Uh, and then at some point it's great. Presumably, I don't, I don't know, you guys, y'all tell me. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, on the flip side, right, there's a thought, oh, well, you know, I'll get hired as a psychologist and I'll just, like, do my thing in, like, academia or in industry. It doesn't actually work like that. I think most people's first jobs are very much, like, not necessarily applying the expertise that they had. They're applying, you know, the skill that you have that the company needs for whatever goal that they're, uh, you know, they're trying to drive. And, like, they don't give a shit that you happen to be really good at, like, social psychology because what they really need you to do is to, like, you know, find the errors in the payment system or whatever it is, or optimize ad mm -hmm. costs. Uh, you know, so I think, I think, like, it's, it's definitely the case that you can get to a point where you're doing it, the kind of work that you want to do, working on the topics that you want to work on. But I think that people should be realistic that it's very hard to, like, jump right into your dream job, like, as, like, you know, number one. Like, for me, mm -hmm. it was, you know, Airbnb is, like, the closest, I would say, to my quote-unquote dream job. But that was, like, three jobs you know, it was my third job in tech and plus the consulting stuff before. So arguably it was like my fourth or fifth kind of like role. Uh, and, you know, and so it took me quite some time to like, to like even figure out that that was the thing that I wanted to do and then to actually like get into it, get actually get into it. So I feel like one thing that people believe about academic jobs is that one of the nice things about being in an academic research job is that you can do research on whatever question you want, right? And you have all of this freedom. Do you ever feel like working in industry that you have to work on questions that you don't want to be working on? I mean, yeah, sir, there have been times where that's been the case, sure. Uh, where like the, the whatever the business question was that people cared about wasn't something that I particularly were motivated on. I felt that a lot at sure. Facebook, especially. Like I, you know, I, I, I literally was like tracking down payments, payment system errors. Like we were trying to like track all of our money before the IPO and I was just trying to figure out where all these millions of dollars had evaporated to. Um, mm -hmm. So that was fine, but it wasn't like, it didn't like scratch the itch uh, mm -hmm. in any, in any like real uh, sense of the word. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that, uh, I think that's pretty, that's like a pretty common experience, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, but do you have more freedom as you go along? Like, do you have more? Yes, yeah, somewhat. I mean, I think the freedom comes in like the the company that you work for and like yeah. the team that you pick within the company, right? So, like now, you know, I'm working on a problem that I find very interesting, and mm -hmm. I, I feel, you know, there are, and you know, in insofar as I've I've done well, and I more or less can have some say as to you know what companies I work for and what product areas, I have some like ability to. to decide what kind of stuff I want to do for sure. Paul, I'm wondering, one of the things that when I, I think, you know, trying to, as someone who, you know, hasn't worked in industry and, and communicating with students and others who haven't worked in industry, um, it's sometimes hard to get a sense of what it, it's actually, like what the actual problems are like, what the actual, like, you know, so, so I know what it means to like, you know, hypothesize, design an experiment, analyze, blah, blah, blah. Like if you were in a, in a slightly more concrete way, like if you were to pick an interesting problem or project that you worked on, um, could you sort of just walk, a, that would be kind of an interesting example for people to get a feel for, for like the kinds of things that you do. Um, can you kind of walk us through one? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me do, I, if you don't mind, I'll do two because I, th I think I'm going to do one from Google because uh, it's, I think, a little bit more relevant if you want to go more like the data science researcher route 
and then I can tell you a bit about like the kind of the stuff that I'm doing at Airbnb and a product role, which is a bit different. So at Google, so when I first joined Google, I joined the Google Plus team. Do you remember that? Oh yeah. Google Plus was a thing that existed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I joined the Google Plus team, and uh, I joined uh, a platform team. And the question that we were really interested in was like, what was the what's the effect of like social information uh, across Google? So some context, like at the time, there was a really big push inside of Google to like make everything social. They were like super paranoid about Facebook and the threat that Facebook represented. And so there was a thought that like the way to win wasn't just to like build Google Plus, but actually like inject Google Plusiness into like every single product area. So like, I'll give some examples of like what that means concretely, right? So there was a push for a while to like integrate social information into search. So, uh, you know, there was a like button called a plus one button. So you could like plus one an article. Okay, and then suppose one of your friends was searching and then uh, one of the articles that you had plus one was in, was like one of their search results, which is an extremely unlikely scenario, which is one of the problems. But suppose that happened, then you would get some like some like thing in the search results saying like, oh, you know, Sanjay liked this article. Uh, or example, another example would be like in the Play Store. If you're downloading an app, you might see your friends that had like plus one that app. Or if I plus one an ad, I might see that like you know some number of people plus one did, or uh, that a specific person that I know uh, you know plus one the ad. And so these these integrations uh, computationally were really expensive. Like in order to compute all this like social network information on the fly, Google had to invest like millions of dollars because if you think about like search, like think about how fast a search result comes in. You're talking about like a 30, 40 millisecond response. So you have to then make all the social stuff happen just as quickly so you can do that but you just have to throw a fuck ton of money sorry oh, we, we swear all the time it, on okay? the podcast yeah <laughs> oh okay good great i swear all the time too fantastic all right so throw a fuck ton of money at it so and there was a question at google like is it worth it for us to like invest all these resources in all of these kind of product integrations so when i came in i did first correlational analyses and then I, I basically conducted experiments across all of these different surface areas across google to answer the question of like what kind of social influence actually uh, influences people and you know how does it work and it, there were a lot of really interesting effects it really depended upon you know what product area you were talking about it depended upon the kind of social information that you talked about uh, that you were presenting it depended upon the strength of your tie to the other person so like we could we had this like amazing ability to actually like tabulate based on like your interactions with somebody like a social closeness score and we could control for that in the in the analysis so we could learn like a lot about like kind of like how social influence actually operated so that was I spent probably like my first roughly my first year or more like just on that project basically like going to every single product surface and saying, I want to run an experiment with you guys. And then in some cases, you know, working with them to get that experiment launched or in a few cases actually implementing it myself. Like I spent, I don't know, three months learning like Java juice dependency injection so I could like write the Play Store version of the experiment. So uh, yeah, so that's what I, that was, that was basically like the uh, sense of what I did at Google um, and other stuff too, but that, that was a big chunk. Um, and then at Airbnb, um, I do something, I actually work on, uh, I work on pricing, so I'm the product manager for a team of machine learning engineers and data scientists who basically are tasked with figuring out what price to suggest to hosts that they should set for every listing. Uh, and so, what you're in, and in practice, right, we refresh these suggestions every day. Uh, so we're generating on the order of like hundreds of millions of prices every single day, and we have a system for doing that. And the question is, how can we make that system as good as possible? And like, it's a very complicated question because. Uh, it's not like Uber where if you want to change the price for like a, 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 a ride, you can just like flip a switch and do that. For us, it's all through suggestions that we make to hosts. 
So I never, we don't set prices. We uh, make the suggestion that the host can accept or, or reject. And as you can imagine, the psychological dimensions of having a machine learning model suggest people the price for their homes has like a lot of like interesting nuance to it, right? Like the endowment effect is something that's potentially very important, right? Anchoring is something that comes up like constantly in my job. So it's very much at this kind of like nexus, this intersection between uh, kind of like behavioral decision making and, and you know, decision uh, tools and advice giving. And then also like all the technical stuff of like, how do you actually know what demand and supply is in the market? How do you like actually know what the right price is that a host should set that would, you know, maximize revenue or profit or whatever the objective uh, is. So it's a really, it's a, it's a fascinating problem. And it's this really amazing kind of like uh, um, mishmash of, uh, you know, psychology and also, you know, very heavy, you know, quantitative machine learning. That's really interesting. Did you feel like the, um, the, the people that you work with understood and appreciated what you brought to that as a psychologist, as a social scientist, or did you kind of have to sell them on it? Like, hey, there's this whole area. Because I, I feel like sometimes social psychology is like, sometimes it's really well known and some peop sometimes people have no idea what we do, right? So were, were they like, oh yeah, like, mm -hmm. you know, JDM anchoring you know, effects and those kinds of things. We need someone who knows that, or, or was that something you had to sort of educate them about? Um, I, people were aware of it for sure. Um, I think that you know one of the reasons why they asked me to work on this area was because of the expertise that I had, and certainly like you know uh, the engineers on my team and the data scientists are actually very savvy. Like they all know about anchoring. They know about these effects. You know when they come up in experiments, they like they can spot them. Uh, so it's definitely something they're aware of. Of course, they don't know the full depth of the literature, and sometimes I can like point to something they're not aware of. But uh, by and large, you know, they're very much uh, you know acknowledging that as like a valid you know source of knowledge. If anything, I'm the more skeptical one these days because of all the replication stuff. Though, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are things that I can like see in the data that I'm pretty convinced is, is there for real. Yeah, that's interesting. I had imagined that that might be the case. That sometimes like you might actually be like, no, the science isn't as clear as like people might think if they're not as. Yeah, totally. We had like, yeah, yeah. We had like uh, implicit bias training at various points. Mm -hmm. And I definitely had some like pretty uncomfortable moments and like moments also where there's like discussions about that stuff. And I, you know, I obviously support the goals uh, that that that's work is trying to achieve. And so, uh, you know, I definitely struggle with like, ooh, you know, do I want to actually like say something here that like, you know, this particular, like d this finding may not be the best thing to depend upon. Uh, and I, I like, you know, stereotype thread is another example, something that's come up that I'm just like, ah, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but mostly, to be honest with you, I, I just I, I don't uh, I don't engage on that stuff as much. Maybe I maybe if I were more courageous, I would. But I, I don't even necessarily think it honestly, it like serves a purpose. Like, I think the ends are, are important and I, I don't perceive them as like, you know, leveraging that research in a way that like, uh, you know, that is harmful. So I mostly, I mostly don't worry about it. I don't know. So, that's not yeah. a great answer. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah. We, that's like a whole nother conversation about like the intersection of replicability and how industry uses science and stuff. Um, yeah. but like backtracking a little, I wanted to ask, since you said that like your, your story might not be very generalizable, what advice mm -hmm. would you give to a grad student who doesn't have an, a background in computer science? Um, but who thinks that they might want to go into industry. So let's imagine, so, okay, so you already talked about, like, you should learn R, you should learn something like R Markdown, be able to make good graphs, um, maybe mm -hmm. learn some, like, learn to use GitHub, um, SQL, 
Things yeah, like that, SQL. But... That was the other thing I was going to say is like a database stuff is like crucial. Like all the, mm-hmm. whenever you see like big data, it's almost always just SQL. Like all mm-hmm. of the big data interfaces, basically you can like pull stuff out there using like a very standard, like generic flavor of it. So uh, if you are good at like some amount of like database querying that like that's, that's very valuable. So if um, they take like online classes and teach themselves that stuff, can they just put that mm-hmm. on their resume or like, should they try to get a like job or internship or unpaid consulting gig where they can demonstrate those skills or how how much do they need to show that they have those skills or yeah i think i think they do have to show it i think there's a lot of different ways in which you can show it i think you know internships obviously is one way i know that all these tech companies now are hiring uh like phd students as interns over the summer Mm -hmm. so definitely you know applying for those is, is a good idea um i think beyond that uh let's see what else um i think if you do projects, like if you if you do side projects, you can like put those on GitHub and you can point to those. A lot of programmers will do that as well, being like, look at this like thing that I built in my spare time. Like this thing like demonstrates that I have X, Y, and Z skills. So that's like nice because you can like kind of point to something that's like somewhat tangible. They can like read your code and be like, oh, okay, this person like clearly like knows how to do this stuff. Um, similarly, like posting analyses and stuff like that. Although, this a, so I guess one caution I would say about this is like, I, I worry about like this kind of advice that involves like doing extra work. Like already, like you probably people have enough work that they need to do like in their lives. And maybe the, the expectation that then they should like do this like extra thing is like maybe too much. So I, I wish that like, you know, kind of like societally, we could like somehow get away from this idea that like we should like demand free labor from people in order to get paid labor. Like it's like unpaid internships. Like it just feels kind of icky to me. Uh, so I, you know, even though that's out there, I, 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 I'm a little bit weary of that. And I do think that like, you know, in the context of like projects that you're actually working on in school, hopefully you can like demonstrate at least some of those kinds of like technical aptitude. And I think like trying to seek out opportunities in your research to like leverage some of these skills. Like if you can show like, oh, I wrote this paper. Look, I used ggplot to like make all the graphs. Like you can see that I know how to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, that that can be a way maybe to like fold it more into your regular process. So it's not this like extra burden on you. Yeah, that's a really good point. So are there jobs in industry for someone who doesn't have a computer science or engineering background, but like taught themselves to be pretty proficient in R and R Markdown and ggplot and stuff like that, but not like SQL, not like Python, you know, just the stuff that like a a psych grad student is likely to know and maybe maybe be on the, like, let's say someone's in the top 20% of like psych grad students in terms of their skills with R and other very common software that's used other jobs if you don't have yeah for sure for sure I think if you're if you're like at that level I think that there are like you know I think getting a top tier data science role at at like a Google or Facebook will be pretty hard but Mm -hmm. the like next tier down I think like the demand is just so high and the people who are competent uh you know are are surprisingly rare even still like you know i think there's an influx i see a lot more undergrads now that are like trying to acquire these skills but i do think you know you would take you'd probably want somebody that's phd over a lot of those folks anyway so i I do think that i I do think that like you can you you definitely can get like that kind of job in addition i think that there are um there are like these user experience research roles that are that like do leverage those same skills but don't require quite as much of like the expertise. So like there's a UX researcher uh, on the pricing team. She's amazing. Uh, and she, you know, does survey research. She's really thoughtful about like research design. She programs in R and SQL. She doesn't do it as much as a data scientist. It's not her like day to day where she's like every single day, you know, pulling some data from a, from a database and like doing stuff to it. But, you know, she is definitely leveraging those same set of skills um, to like do UX research. I think the, the key though there is that for that kind of role, 
there is uh, part of it is also very qualitative as well. So I think that like, again, if you want to go that route, I think it would be valuable to like, I, this might seem counterintuitive because we've been talking about like acquiring technical skills, but like a lot of UX roles involve like small group, like, uh, you know, kind of like a cognitive walkthrough type work. And so uh, if you can gain some of that kind of expertise as well, like that's something that HCI people kind of differentiate themselves with. But like if you can do process tracing kind of methods, I think that, like, that will serve you extremely well. And if you don't want to necessarily go like the full stats route of like getting good at R, I think like getting rigorous in that kind of methodology could be like an alternative that is like attainable uh, that actually would be quite valuable. One more question about I your feel- story. Sorry. Real quick, you mentioned that you had connections. How important are connections? Can you get a job oh, yeah, without great. connections? Oh man, I think you can get a job without connections, though. Uh, I, connections help a ton. Um, I think the primary, and especially for like top tier like companies, like the thing you have to realize is that there's like a really big screening problem. You know, Google literally gets a million resumes a year. How the heck are they going to possibly find you know the the special snowflake that you are underneath mm-hmm. that giant pile? Like it's it's very tough, and so you know they definitely rely on uh, you know p- p- internal referrals as a way to kind of like do that first round of weed out. Not even to mm-hmm. say like you know your your chances don't jump that much. I remember I, I saw a presentation on the hiring funnel. Like I think you know it goes from like you know less than one percent to like one percent or something like that. So it's not like you know I mean proportionally right it like doubles your chances, but like absolutely in an absolute term it's not like this is your way in like you still have to kick ass and actually like get the offer but Mm -hmm. uh to get you like past that initial hurdle networking is like super duper valuable so like typically you know i have a lot of grad students like email me and like ask me for career advice and the thing i generally tell them is like you know one area that i can be helpful is like if there are introductions that i can make so i always tell people you know friend me on LinkedIn, feel free to look at my network. If there's somebody in there that you want to meet that I like know it well enough to introduce you to, I'm happy to do that. And I think like that's something that, uh, you know, that, that is extremely valuable. And actually going back to the earlier question about like what faculty can do for students, I think that's actually one thing like opening up your network, like you, okay, you know, you might not have that many students or any students that are actually in industry, but I bet you have a lot of undergrads that went into industry, you know, like this job at Airbnb that I got, I got it because there was a research, an undergrad in a lab that I worked in at Carnegie Mellon, who is now a vice president at Airbnb and he referred me to this job. So, you know, that's an example of networking that was not through like the kind of like standard channel. So I, you know, keep an eye out and like, you know, keep in touch with your like amazing undergrads because I think that that's potentially like a really valuable connection that can pay off. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so another thing that I hear, I think graduate students who are debating about whether or not to go into an industry job or an academic job, um, one thing that I hear them say is that one thing they don't like about academia is A, taking your work home with you or always feeling like you're working and be uh, this like pressure to publish, which may be fairly independent things. Um, but I'm wondering like, do you escape those things? I'm, I'm sure like you don't have the equivalent of pressure to publish, but but maybe there's some version of that. Yeah, um, I don't, th- I think it depends, but I, I would agree with you that like, I don't think you totally escape them. Like I think that, so like one thing is like, you know, in terms of taking your work home with you, it really depends on the company and the role. Um, you know, the, more, the smaller the company, the more it's like a startup, the more demands will be that like you will take some of that work home. Like when I worked at Facebook initially, I was working pretty intense hours. I was definitely working six days a week. Uh, and, you know, that that was that was tough. Um, I, you know, that at Google, it was much more chill. 
uh, I was definitely only working 40 hours a week. I would never work weekends. Like work-life balance and sustainability is like a big thing for them. Um, and I think it is more so for Facebook now. I think it was just kind of like a, the phase they were in at that time. Um, Airbnb is like somewhere in between. Like I, you know, I probably work, I don't know, 50 hours a week. Do I work on weekends? A little bit, not like too much, but like definitely Sunday, I will like put in at least a few hours like prepping for, for the week. Um, so yeah, I would say kind of like it, it varies. In terms of like the pressure to publish, I think that there is a kind of pressure there. I think the pressure is moving quickly. That yeah. is like a hard thing uh, for pe a lot of people to like get used to, you know, like it's not like it's not about like, oh, can I get this some number of papers out? It's like, can I get this analysis done in an acceptable way in a couple of days or in a week? And I think I've seen definitely examples of, of uh, you know, folks making that transition who struggle with that part of it with like the pace. And that definitely mm -hmm. is something that gets used to. And like if you don't produce quickly enough, you can you know, that can be a problem for sure. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I've definitely seen that. Paul, I um, maybe we can make this the last question because we're we're gonna run out of time in a little bit. But I, I wanted to, and I'll just ask in an open-ended way: um, Are there any things that we haven't talked about that you think a sort of typical psychology graduate student would want to know or need to know if they're either making the decision about whether to go into industry or academia, or if they've made if they've made the decision and and about how to do it? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I mean, I guess one thing that has changed that I would say that people should start thinking about is like, okay, like you may not know if you want to go into industry like in year two or year three or something like that. Like try an internship. I think it's a really like it's a it's a fairly low, uh, low risk move. Like, yeah, okay, you'll miss, you know, two months of like work with your advisor or whatever, but like potentially you can make uh, connections that can help you get a paper out, you know, through the internship that, that I've seen that happen a lot. Um, but even beyond just like the, the academic consequences, like it'll just give you a sense of like, is this something that I actually want to do or I could like see myself doing and enjoying? I think getting your feet wet is like really, really important. And I think that more people should like find ways of doing that. And like, truthfully, it's not for everyone. And some people do get their feet wet and they're like, this is not for me. And I, you know, I do want to stay in academia and like, it's more worth it to me to be a postdoc. And that's fine too. Like, I'm not here saying like, oh, you know, that decision of, uh, you know, is a bad decision or that like you shouldn't pursue your dreams. Uh, you know, if that's what you want to do, you should do it. But I think people should try to make as informed decision as possible. And like, even if they're not sure, like actively seek out that information. So that, that's, I would say like one piece of advice, mm -hmm. um, that I, that I would that's offer. Fantastic. Well, yeah. I think we're out of time, but Paul, thank you so much. This has been super interesting. Yeah, and thank you. Sure, it's been my pleasure. It went by so fast. <laughs> and I, I, on behalf <laughs> of our listeners, thank you too, because I know that a lot of people, we have a lot of grad students that listen to the podcast, and they're going to find this super beneficial. So thank yeah. you very much. And that, Sure, happy to help. And if people, if grad students want to reach out to me, like they can email you and you guys can forward stuff to me, or like I'm, my email is probably findable on the internet. Like I, I love helping people. Uh, especially like in this situation, like, you know, having gone through it myself, like I just feel a lot of empathy and just like a lot of like, I feel like that's one way in which I can like give back. So uh, if there's ways out there for listeners uh, that I can be helpful, like don't, you know, it's okay. It might take me a little bit to respond, but I, I respond to that's all awesome. emails. Wow. That's that, nice. Maybe another difference between academia and industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Paul. And uh, 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 we'll see sure. you all next time on The Black Goat.